Remain standing for our sermon text from Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Give your ear to the gospel of Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Paul's come to the climax of his introduction, his introductory greeting here, to the believers in Rome. Verses 16 and 17 are the most important sentences in this letter. I might even suggest perhaps the most important sentences in all of literature. These two verses constitute the theme of Romans, the theme of Paul's life, and the essence of Christianity. Without a doubt, the heart of biblical religion is Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul wrote Romans to explain and apply the power that is the gospel. Without the gospel and without the power that it is, There can be no salvation, no deliverance from sin, no life with God. Everything God wants for you is found in the gospel of Christ. His glory that he shares with you, his power that he gives to you, his righteousness that he credits to your account. Everything God wants for you is found in the gospel. And Paul's going to spend the rest of Romans exploring and unpacking every facet of this gospel, which is summarized for us in verses 16 and 17. So far in Paul's introduction, the apostle has identified himself as a slave and an apostle of the gospel. He's expressed his gratitude to God for what the gospel has produced in the lives of these Roman Christians. He's told the Roman believers about his longing to visit them, that, he might, that they might be mutually encouraged, mutually edified by speaking the gospel to one another. And of course, he also wants to preach the gospel to them and to others. He's expressed a desire to take the gospel to the Greeks and even to the barbarians beyond Rome even as far as Spain. And now in verse 16, he raises the question, am I ashamed of the gospel? Am I ashamed to come to the most powerful city in the world to proclaim this good news? No, he says. The power of God will cast in stark relief the so-called power of man. That's why he's not ashamed. The gospel will reveal God's righteousness amidst man's unrighteousness. And everyone in Rome and in the rest of the world who embraces this gospel will be saved. And so Paul's not ashamed, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he says. But he raises the issue because, from a human standpoint, there must have been reason to be ashamed. 
There's no reason to declare that you're not ashamed of something unless you're aware of the temptation to feel ashamed of that thing. And Paul was not immune to temptation, was he? He was a man. He was a sinner. And the gospel had already caused him to endure much shame. Jesus anticipated that his followers might be ashamed to identify themselves with him, with the gospel and with him. Mark 8, 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Peter, the lead apostle, of course, was ashamed. He denied Jesus three times in one night. Even Paul himself confessed upon arriving in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he arrived in weakness and in fear and with much trembling especially as he compared himself to the well-spoken and sophisticated Greeks in every age and in every place, and even in 21st century Midwestern America. It's possible to be ashamed of the gospel instead of being eager to share it. Have you ever had the opportunity to talk to someone about Christ, but you knew that they didn't want to hear it, or at least they didn't want to hear it again, so instead of creating an awkward moment You just chose to keep the conversation light so that you could not ruin what you had. You might might have assured yourself that there'd be another opportunity. Maybe we need to build a relationship. A similar thing can happen even with fellow believers, especially with Christians that, that you've known for a long time, maybe know the best. Sometimes talking about Christ and the things of the Lord and the powerful outworking of the gospel in your life is the most difficult topic to bring up with believing family members or longtime Christian friends. At the root is, is the fear of, of being shamed, of being shot down or looked down upon. Paul, though, had learned to overcome the shame of being ostracized, mocked, beaten, imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. He spoke to everyone about the good news of Christ, from Gentiles to Jews. From royalty to rabble, from high class to low class, he was not embarrassed. Whether he was with unbelievers or believers, Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ because Paul gloried in Christ and his gospel. For Paul, the good news about the death and resurrection of Christ was the gospel of God's glory. It was a glorious thing. The cross is where true Glory is to be found for Paul. That was his worldview. The glory of the cross. Paul explicitly equates the gospel with God's glory in 1 Timothy 1 verse 11. He refers to the good news as the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. When he's writing to Timothy. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And the gospel of God's glory ultimately puts to shame the vain glory of man. It was the same Paul who wrote at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might glory in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, even righteousness from God and sanctification and redemption, so that 
as it is written, let the one who glories glory in the Lord. That's where glory is to be found. If you glory in anything other than the Lord and his gospel, you'll inevitably find yourself feeling ashamed of the gospel at some level when it threatens whatever it is you glory in more than the Lord. So whatever it is you glory in more than the Lord, that's going to be threatened at points along the way by the gospel. And you're going to be ashamed of one of the two. You've got to pick. So if you, if you glory in being liked by colleagues and friends, if you glory in being highly regarded in your community or maybe in your field, then you run the risk of being embarrassed by the gospel when it poses a threat to your reputation or your likability. If you glory in being the guy at work who is non-threatening and easygoing and, and interesting and doesn't cram things down people's throat, or if you glory in being the most popular college student on campus, then you run the risk of being embarrassed by the gospel when it changes people's perception of you. What is it that you glory in more than you glory in the gospel and its power to save? What do you prize more highly? What is it that causes you to be embarrassed or might cause you to be embarrassed by the gospel of Christ? For Paul, the gospel of Christ was the gospel of God's glory because it was, the second point on your outline, it was the gospel of God's power. Paul continues in verse 16, For it is the power of God resulting in salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. In the gospel, and Paul's referring here to the gospels, the proclamation of the gospel, words and power come together as one. Paul doesn't just say that the gospel contains power, it has power, it brings power, possesses power, is accompanied by power. That, those are all true things. We could, we could put it that way, and it's not false, right? But Paul goes further. The, what, his language is that the gospel is God's power. The message of Christ is the power of God in verbal, cognitive form. Think of it this way. Just as the eternal Son of God became man in the person of Christ, so also the eternal power of God becomes words in the gospel message of Christ. The words of a gospel preacher, insofar as he is being faithful to the text of Scripture, his words are themselves the power of God that result in salvation to everyone who believes in them. The gospel of God's power builds people up and it conforms people into the image of Christ. It transforms and changes hearts and minds. And so when it's outlined and explained and proclaimed, unfolded, or when you read it in your prayer closet and meditate on it, listen to it on the way to work, its power is unleashed on the human heart when that happens. The most important thing any church, any local congregation can do is to make sure it appoints preachers that preach and teach the gospel of Christ week in and week out. If that's not happening, 
the power of God is not being unleashed, not being released on the body of Christ. Because the power of God is only present where the gospel is, where the gospel is proclaimed, where the gospel is spoken, where the gospel is central, where the gospel is talked about, where the gospel is applied and lived out. When the 5th century bishop Theodoret of Cyrus preached on Romans 1.16, he compared the hidden power of the gospel to the hidden heat of a pepper. He said, a pepper has a cold appearance, and it shows no sign of heat. But he that bites it with his teeth perceives its fiery nature. I like that illustration. The gospel can appear, maybe at first or on the surface, like, like an unbelievable story, a, myth, a mythology, an outdated religion, an uninteresting philosophy or theory. It, on the surface, it might just look like all the other religions that you've cycled through or thought about, right? Talk to many people that that's how they think of Christianity. Just, it's just another one. But as soon as you bite into it, as soon as you experience it personally, you perceive, like the heat of that pepper, you perceive its power. And what does this power do? Fundamentally, it saves. God's power in the gospel results in salvation. Or as the old King James puts it, it is the power of God unto salvation. It transforms affections and orientations. It changes belief systems. It gives wisdom and understanding. It grants repentance and faith and perseverance. It accomplishes what no other power on earth can. It reconciles sinners to God. And over time, it makes those saved sinners look more like God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear, and Romans is the clearest of all on how humans get plugged into this power. You do it simply by uniting yourself to Christ. And and the only way that you can unite yourself to Christ, connect yourself to Christ, to to the power of God and the gospel, the only way you can unite yourself to Christ and his power is by believing. That's it. By Believing in his name. God's power in the gospel saves everyone who believes. It saves everyone who believes. So the only way to bite into the gospel and to perceive its power is through faith in Christ. You can't bring anything else that contributes to that connection, to that union. Faith connects you to the power of the gospel just as a light switch connects a light bulb, to its power source. In verse 16, Paul says that the gospel's power, interestingly, it's both boundless and bounded at the same time. In one sense, it's without boundaries. In another sense, it has boundaries. You see that in verse 16? On the one hand, it's for everyone, anyone and everyone, right? Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a barbarian, On the other hand, it's limited to those with faith. It is for everyone, Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, 
who believes. And what is it about the gospel that makes it so powerful, so transformative, so life-changing? Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is the heart of this passage. The gospel of Christ is the gospel of God's righteousness. Romans 1.17 is the verse that saved Martin Luther and ignited the Protestant Reformation. And the pivotal words for Luther were the righteousness of God. He struggled with what that meant as an as a Augustinian monk. Luther later wrote about his struggle with this phrase. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way except that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that, that, righteous, I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. My situation was that although an impeccable monk I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement, the righteous shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it came to be inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. End quote. The righteousness of God is the righteousness that comes from God. It's the righteousness that God gives to everyone who believes. It's the righteousness that God credits to your account when you put your faith in Jesus. During the next couple of chapters, starting in the next verse, Romans 1.18, going all the way to Romans 3.20, Paul will drive home that everyone is unrighteous. No one is righteous. In the rest of chapter 1, he focuses on the, the, uh, the Gentiles and, and their sin, right? Their hopelessness. But then in chapter 2, you know, if you're reading this as a Jew, you're thinking, yeah, get on, you know, those Gentiles are bad. Sin-infested Gentiles. Well, in chapter 2, he'll, he makes the same point about the Jews. They're no better. And then, just to make sure he's clear, in chapter 3, he summarizes and just says, Everyone, the whole human race is unrighteous. Every single member of the human race is unrighteous. Chapter 3, verse 11, for example, Paul says, There is none righteous, no, not one, no, no, no one. Verse 12, There is none who does good, no, not one. 
In other words, immediately after Paul states his thesis in verses 16 and 17, he's going to launch into this long section showing that every person who has ever been born besides Jesus is by nature under God's wrath and in need of God's righteousness. Look how this long section begins. If, if your Bible's open, you can look at verse 18. Or I can read it for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So no one is righteous. No one is right with God. No one has a right standing with God. Everyone comes into this world as an unrighteous sinner under God's wrath. And to be right with God, to gain a right standing with God, every son or daughter of Adam and Eve must receive from God the righteousness that they need, the righteousness that only God can give. You can't produce the righteousness that you need on your own. You've got to receive it from the outside, more specifically from God. And where can you find it? Where do you find this righteousness that, that you need? One place in the gospel of Christ. That's where it's revealed to mankind. No one would ever know of it or think of it or guess it or find it unless God revealed it to them through his word. And it is revealed, Paul says. It has been. The gospel is where God offers his righteousness to humans. A righteous standing before God is nowhere else to be found. And there's only one way to receive the righteousness that comes from God. It's by faith from first to last. That's what Paul means when he says from faith to faith in verse 17. In fact, that's how the NIV translates it. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's more of a paraphrase than a translation, but it's a good interpretation. Paul's emphasizing the righteousness of God that is by faith alone. The only way to obtain it is through faith. Can't work for it. Now, more is being promised here than the mere forgiveness of sins. We shouldn't reduce the gospel merely to the wiping away of iniquities. It's true that on the cross, our sins were laid upon Jesus, and we were pardoned of every one of those sins when, when we believe in him. But that's only half the story. It's, it's only one side of the gospel. If the cross merely canceled our debt, then it would be left to us to add credit to our account so that we have positive assets. We'd still have to, to work. We'd still have work to do in gaining a righteous standing before God. Adam, remember, was given the positive command. He, he had a clean slate. He had no sin. And he, but he was given a positive command in the garden. And if, if Adam had obeyed that God's law, he would have secured a righteous standing before God. Okay? If the cross only removes sin's guilt, then it merely puts us in a situation like Adam was in where we still need to obey God's law. We still need to do his commandments. And we need to do them perfectly in order to secure a righteous standing before him. We, we need to add positive obedience 
to our account. The problem, of course, is that we are utterly incapable of that kind of obedience. There's none righteous, no, not one. And, and, if you, and if, even if you had just disobeyed one commandment, then you've broken the whole law of God. Now, Adam had more, Adam had more than a fighting chance in the garden. He could have obeyed God's law perfectly. It's a mystery why he didn't, right? But he could have. He didn't have this, a sinful nature to contend with. And so there's a sense in which he was able to do what God required of him. God gave him the ability to do it. But you and I have the, the sinful nature. We, we inherited the flesh, this tendency towards sin from Adam, and there's no chance of us obeying God's law perfectly. And yet, perfect obedience is what God requires. That's what it means to be righteous. No one can be righteous before God apart from that perfect, positive obedience. And so we need to be forgiven of our unrighteousness, and we need the presence of righteousness. We need righteous deeds as well, positive obedience to God's law. The righteousness of God, which is the righteousness of Christ in his life and death and resurrection, is two-sided. Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross cleanses the believer from all unrighteousness. And Christ's sinless life of perfect obedience to God's law gets credited to the account of every believer. So that God counts every believer as one who has obeyed God's law perfectly. That's hard to accept, isn't it? God counts you truly as one who has obeyed his law, his commandments, perfectly. Because Christ did it for you. And his obedience gets counted, gets imputed to you. The righteousness of God, or as Paul calls it, calls it in Philippians 3, the righteousness that is from God provides the believer both with the clean slate and with the positive obedience that God required of Adam and then God required of Israel. A Bible word that we need to get familiar with as we go through Romans is that verb, imputed. It's a theological term, but it's a, it's a Bible word. Paul uses it. Uh, other New Testament authors use it. If you're a Christian, you are righteous before God, declared righteous before God, because God has imputed or credited the righteousness of Christ to your account. Paul, Paul uses that language of account and banking wages in, in Romans 4. You were in need of the forgiveness of sins and in need of the positive obedience. You were unrighteous. You needed righteousness. While you were in a helpless state, an enemy of God, God came to you and he gave you the righteousness of Christ by faith. He connected you to Jesus by giving you the faith that connects you to Jesus the way a light bulb is connected to its power source. And as soon as you were united to Christ by faith, this is your story, Christian, as soon as you were united to Christ by faith, God imputed to you, credit to your account, all of Christ's righteousness. His death on the cross for your sins, his perfect obedience. 
Another way of looking at this is that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you and your unrighteousness has been imputed to Christ. Luther called this the great exchange. And Paul teaches it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he said, you know, Christ takes the penalty of our unrighteousness and we get the credit of his righteousness. Paul says there, for our sake God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he declared him unrighteous so that we could be declared righteous. We got his righteousness. He got our unrighteousness. In his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Puritan Thomas Brooks makes a list of, quote, Satan's devices to keep saints in a sad, doubting, questioning, and uncomfortable condition. One of those, you know, Puritan headings or titles. So is that you? Are you in a sad, doubting, questioning, and uncomfortable condition? Is your conscience something look a lot like Martin Luther's? If so, it may be because you you're more mindful of your unrighteousness than you are of God's righteousness. You're you're fixated on your sin rather than your savior. Listen to what Brooks says about that. The first device that Satan has to keep souls in sad, doubting, and questioning condition, and so making their life a hell, this describes Luther, is by causing them to be still pouring and musing upon sin, to mind their sins more than their Savior, to mind their sins so as to forget, yes, to neglect their Savior. As the psalmist speaks, the Lord is not in all their thoughts. Psalm 10.4. Their, their eyes are so fixed upon their disease that they cannot see the remedy, though it be near. And they do so muse upon their debts that they have neither mind nor heart to think about their surety. A Christian should, listen to this, a Christian should wear in his bosom as a flower of delight, I'm sorry, a Christian should wear Christ in his bosom as a flower of delight, for he is a whole paradise of delight. He who minds not Christ more than his sin can never be thankful and fruitful as he should. You can't make yourself any more pleasing to God by beating yourself up about your sins, your wickedness. It doesn't help anything. It's good to be shameful of the shameful th- shame, ashamed of the shameful things you've done, but then you confess those sins and you are forgiven. And, they, and you don't fix, fixate on them anymore. Rather than stewing over your sins, set your heart and mind on the one who paid the penalty for those sins and gave you his righteousness in exchange for your wickedness, your unrighteousness. Focus on what God gave you in that great exchange, 
not on what you gave Christ. You gave it to him and he took care of it. He dealt with it. And so to fixate on it more than you fixate on his righteousness that he gives you is to sort of implicitly deny that he took care of it. Begin this week to wear Christ in your bosom as a flower of delight, for he is a whole paradise of delight. The notion of being righteous by faith alone is not a New Testament idea. Paul didn't invent it. Again, it wasn't cooked up between the Testaments. God's righteousness by faith alone is affirmed in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Paul could have gone all the way back, by the way, to Genesis 15, verse 6, which, which he does elsewhere, where uh, God says, uh, where the text says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited or imputed to Abraham his faith as righteousness. So his faith, it sure certainly wasn't his works, made him ri- righteous before God. So, and, and Paul quotes that in, in Romans 4. But this time, in chapter 1, he, just, he goes back to Habakkuk 2, 4. Just as it is written, Paul says, but the righteous one will live by faith. God spoke these words to Habakkuk when the prophet was at his wit's end. In around 600 B.C. or a little before, before the Babylonians had come and taken Judah into captivity. And Habakkuk was upset with God because God seemed oblivious to Israel's rampant wickedness, idolatry. In response to Habakkuk's complaints, God said that he, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish Israel. But this just produced more cries and complaints of injustice and inaction in Habakkuk because Babylon was even more wicked than Judah And so God answers the prophet again in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 to 4, which Bobby read. I'm not going to read it again, but I'm going to paraphrase it and unpack what what is said there. It's, It's as if he's saying, Habakkuk, I'm about to reveal something to you. And I'm going to write it down on a tablet, or on tablets, God says, so that the herald can go, can read it, hear it, and then go and proclaim it. And it's a revelation of my righteousness. It's good news. And you'll have to wait for it. You know, the text says it's, it's, you have to wait for it. But when it comes, it'll, it'll put to rest your concerns about my injustice and inaction. In the meantime, until my righteousness is fully manifested, while you're waiting for it to be revealed fully, you who are righteous are to trust me. You are to live by faith in my righteousness, to rest in it. There's nothing you can do to fix the situation. You'll just need to live by faith rather than by sight until what I've promised is fully accomplished. So that's, that's what's going on there. And maybe you can see the parallels between Habakkuk's situation and Paul's or the believers in Rome. Paul's writing over 650 years later, around A.D. 57 probably, to a community of Christians living in the most powerful city in the world. 
Seven or eight years earlier, in around 50, Emperor Claudius had banished all Jews from Rome, including all the Christians. And that was, really, I mean, that was just a foretaste of what was to come, what Rome would do to the church in the years, decades, even centuries to come. During the next decade, in fact, in the 60s, Paul himself, along with many other believers, would be martyred by the, in, you know, by the hands of at the hands of Nero, when Bible expositor asks, could the believers in Rome have wondered where God was in the midst of their suffering under Claudius? Could they have been embarrassed, even ashamed, as Habakkuk had been, that God was seemingly doing nothing to rescue them? Could they have felt powerless to act, wanting to do something but not knowing what to do? Paul had read Habakkuk, obviously, and he knew that the Roman believers needed a revelation from God, something to be written on a tablet, as it were. They needed good news in the midst of their confusion. They were outnumbered. The promises of God didn't always seem to be manifest. So he writes in verses 16 and 17 about this. The gospel of Christ is, good, is the good news. It, it, and Paul is the herald. He's the one proclaiming it, and he's not ashamed of it. He's, he's going to proclaim it. He's not ashamed of God's apparent inaction or his timing. And why? Because God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. The, the, the pagan power of Rome, like the pagan power of Babylon, is no match for the power of God, which is the gospel. And so never imagine that God's power is absent, even when it appears to be. You just need to know where to find it and know a little bit about how it works. The power is here in the gospel, and in it the righteousness of God will continue to be revealed against all manner of sin everywhere, doing what it does and what it has been doing, even for 2,000 years. In the meantime, the righteous must live by faith in the revealed righteousness of God in Christ. That can be received from God in Christ. So rather than thinking you are powerless to change Rome, the gospel gives you the power of God, and it's the power that changes lives, starting with yours. And so 2,000 years later, in our post-Christian Western world, we, we need a similar message. We can feel powerless against the cultural trends and tides that are gaining strength. We need what Habakkuk needed over 2,600 years ago and what the Christians in Rome needed nearly 2,000 years ago. We need a herald with a revelation of good news from God. And the gospel is that revelation. And Paul's letter to the Romans is, is one of the tablets that it's written on. But where is the herald? The herald is every believer who knows that the righteous will live by faith, regardless of the circumstances. And even who knows that our righteousness is obtained from God by faith. Everyone around you is in need of this gospel, in need of this power. Everyone. Whether it's an unbeliever, oppressed by his sin, enslaved to his sin, or a believer, 
who feels powerless amidst the, the principalities and the powers. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is a, is a fresh insider application of the truth of Isaiah 55, 11, that verse we've all heard many times, where God says, my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The gospel doesn't just contain the power of God. It is the power of God to everyone who believes, everyone who lives by it, to everyone who lives by faith from first to last, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Starting with Israel, starting in Jerusalem, the gospel is flowing to the nations. And Paul here is inviting the Romans He's also inviting us to become partners in the proclamation of that power. Let's pray. Help us, God, to believe the gospel of Christ. And help us to not be ashamed of it. We need you to work both of those things in us by the power of your spirit. We ask for it in Jesus' name, amen.